Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors at The Summit, and uh, it's a joy to be able to just share this next portion of uh, the Gospel according to Matthew uh, with you. We're in a section in Matthew where we're really seeing um, the power of Jesus on display, a series of miracle after miracle, and the robust and diverse ways that the kindness and the power of Jesus breaks into our lives. And if you remember last week, um, I want to remind you of a question that I want to have going in your mind as we're looking at this next story of healing in the gospel according to Matthew. And here is the question is, what happens when our weakness encounters Jesus' willingness? What happens when we are honest and vulnerable about our finiteness and our limitations and our weakness? What happens when honesty about our weakness encounters the powerful willingness of Jesus? What would I be expectant of? What would I be asking for? What would I be anticipating? What would happen in my life? What I'm really praying in the coming weeks as we see this uh, recurring theme of the power of Jesus on display, uh, and as we are asking that same question over and over again, is I'm praying that God, by the power of His Spirit, would birth two particular fruits uh, in your life. One is just a posture of safety, a posture of safety that you would feel safe to be honest with Jesus, really honest with him. And even if you're somebody who's unlikely to be honest or vulnerable, even if you're somebody who's experienced the consequences and the trauma a lot of times that comes with exposing who you really are. The reality is, the harsh reality is, is if we look back on many of our lives, when we have been honest and vulnerable and exposed where it is that we are broken, um, we have not been loved but rather abandoned, and consequently we believe we have to exist in this tension that either we pretend we're something better than we really are, or we expose our real selves and we're abandoned as a consequence. But beloved with Jesus, there is a unique safety where he sees who we really are and he does not forsake us or abandon us, but he welcomes us and he heals us. And his power breaks into our lives. So there is a unique safety with Jesus. And I think you're going to see that in particular this week where here's this guy, the centurion, this accomplished Roman official, literate, intelligent, charismatic. He has it all together, it seems, but he's uniquely vulnerable to Jesus and he finds a unique welcoming safety from the exclusive savior of the world. So one is safety. Two is expectancy. Two is expectancy. I think a lot of times when we feel like we are going to expose that maybe we don't have our act all together, we lower the bar of expectation rather than raise it. But somehow in the upside down nature of the kingdom, what triggers the power of Jesus breaking into our lives is not that we pretend that we're better than we really are, but we're vulnerable to the reality that we are weak, but he is willing. That we're honest about our weaknesses what is not coming is abandonment. And what's coming from Jesus is not just a simple like, it's okay, I love you anyways. But instead, what I want you to see is to raise your bar of expectation that somehow, again and again, what triggers the miracles of Jesus in his people's lives is this confession of weakness and his willingness to break in his power into his people's lives. So I want you to be asking that question. What happens when honesty about my weaknesses and taking that to Jesus meets his powerful willingness. What am I asking God for? What am I expecting of? What would happen if God answers my prayers? 
in the coming weeks and months, particularly in light of this very difficult cultural moment. And I can't wait to show you how this theme emerges again in this centurion's life. Very simply, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the story and our story. We're just going to look at Jesus interact with this man, this very unlikely man, and we're going to see how that story spills into our story. So look with me at verse 5. The text says this, when he, that's Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now let's pause here. Let me give you a bit of context. Jesus just finished the Sermon on the Mount, and Capernaum is just outside of where Jesus would have been delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Capernaum was what was known as a garrison town. So what happened politically in the first century is the Jews were ruled by the Romans. But Roman soldiers a lot of times were not stationed directly in a city like Jerusalem because there would have been a lot of political tension there and it would have led to kind of a powder keg of uh, political tension exploding. So a lot of times what would happen is the Romans would uh, uh, station their soldiers in surrounding cities called garrison towns and Capernaum would have been one of these particular communities. Now, um, just as we said last week, this week, again, we're going to see Jesus not just heal, uh, bring healing into a man's life, but healing into a very uh, unlikely man's life. We said, um, even if you remember back when we started Matthew, we said that one of the things that Jesus is going to be doing is he's going to be turning upside down many of the particularly Jewish cultural expectations of the Messiah in the day. So it was sort of believed that the Messiah is going to be this a warrior king who is going to drink the blood of his enemies to slay the tyrannical pagan Romans. And what an unlikely, bizarrely beautiful encounter is coming right here in this moment where Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, not just of the Jewish people, but the entire world, comes to meet this official, this leader, this influencer in the midst of of the Roman oppressive system. How will Jesus treat this man? Will he murder him? Will he mock him? Will he abandon him? What, what is Jesus going to do? Well, we're going to see the way Jesus treats this man in five particular scenes unfolding. One, the centurion's problem. Verse 6 says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So there's the problem. Uh, this Roman soldier has someone under his authority who is suffering greatly, and he has some sort of belief that Jesus has the capacity to heal. So he's bringing his problem to Jesus. Two, Jesus' cheeky response. Um, that's what they say in, in England, at least, is a cheeky response. Verse 7, uh, uh, Jesus does this. It says, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, what's interesting about this statement, and particularly of the light, in light of the larger context, is um, a lot of scholars believe that what Jesus is doing in verse 7 is basically giving a leading question here. Uh, some of that emerges from the structure of the sentence in the original language, uh, and a lot of it emerges from the way that the centurion will respond just after the statement. But basically, it's almost like Jesus is saying, well, why are you bringing this problem to me? You, you want me to heal him? You want me to do something about it? It's like Jesus is kind of fishing for more of like, kind of, how do you understand who I am? Do you think I'm just a wonder worker? You think I'm just a problem fixer? Or do you think that I'm something more than this? What, what really is? It's like Jesus is asking these leading questions, these gentle, brilliant leading questions. Um, give me a little more. 
But why are you bringing this problem to me? Three, the centurion's honesty about his weakness. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, remember that theme, that initial question I want you to be wrestling with. What happens when honesty about our weakness comes in contact with the willing power of Jesus? So what happens first is we actually see this centurion respond with a confession of weakness, which would have been tremendously uh, uh, surprising. Again, what you would instinctually believe that he would be doing is trying to prove to Jesus the long list of reasons why he was uniquely qualified for Jesus to give him something. I'm literate when 90% of the world at this time is not literate. I'm educated. I'm accomplished. I'm influential. I'm charismatic. I'm a leader in the most powerful military force in the history of the world. And what does he lead with? I am not worthy to have you come into my roof. I'm going I'm to come to this at the end, but I just want to say this right here in this moment, is I think a lot of times, if you have some sort of categorical belief that Jesus can bring blessing and healing and goodness into your life, beloved, I think a lot of times, while we conceptually adhere to that Jesus is able to do this, the reality is, is we believe we're disqualified because we haven't done enough to deserve that blessing into our lives. So we sort of believe, yes, I conceptually believe that Jesus can move. I believe that Jesus can heal. I believe that Jesus can work. But I think of what it is I did this past weekend. I think of how much my faith has been struggling um, just because of the difficulties of 2020. I think of this thing that I did. I think of this thing that happened to me once. And um, yeah, I believe that Jesus heals, but he heals other people who are better than me. I'm not worthy. Don't you see, beloved? I'm not worthy is the confession that leads to Jesus not abandoning us, but exposing his willing power into our lives. If you're wrestling with that feeling of being unworthy, you're not far away from Jesus. You're close to his blessing like you see in the life of the centurion. Jesus heals not because we are good, but because he is good. And what invites the power of God into our lives is not a projection of our strength, but rather vulnerability and honesty about our weaknesses. Four, the centurion's confidence in Jesus' powerful willingness. So he says, I'm not worthy, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. All right, why do you, why do you believe that's the case, centurion? Verse nine, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now, it's really amazing. This is not only just a, uh, from the centurion, a beautiful declaration, but a highly logical declaration of why he is bringing this problem to Jesus. So I know we got a lot of points here. I even got some subpoints for you here that are lettered here as well. So just, just hopefully this is helpful. All right, so subpoint one. Here's kind of the logic of the centurion of why he is bringing this to Jesus. One, what he's recognizing is, not very powerful people demonstrate great power all the time. That's the beginning of his logic of why he thinks that Jesus can heal. Not very powerful people demonstrate great power all the time. Um, for example, he gives himself 
as an example. He's saying, I'm a leader in an army. I tell people to go places and they go places. I tell them to do things and they do those things. Contextualize that into today. Some of you uh, are bosses, for example, and you tell somebody to do something and they do that thing. You tell them to go somewhere and they go and do that. And you have a self-awareness. I'm not very powerful, but that's kind of crazy that, that people will do that. Other people will do that in response to what it is I ask them to do. Or maybe you're somebody who's on the other end of that relationship and you uh, aren't a boss, but you have a boss that tells you to do things and you do things. And that boss isn't particularly you know, uh, impressive or powerful, but you just kind of recognize not very powerful people exercise great power all the time. I don't know this, why this story popped into my mind this past week. I've not thought about this in well over a decade. But um, I went to college at the University of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. And um, my first or second week there, uh, I, was, I was walking with some friends at like 12.30, one, 1 in the morning, because that's just what you do. And I was out, and uh, there's a portion of the, uh, uh, the, the South Carolina campus called the Horseshoe. It's actually right where I proposed to my wife. Beautiful, beautiful part of campus. And I bump into this friend of mine that I had gone to high school with. I, uh, we'd, we'd gone from kindergarten to graduation together. And I hadn't seen him since we had uh, arrived on campus. Now, the reason I hadn't seen him is he decided to join a fraternity, and I had not decided to join a fraternity. And he was in the middle of, I, I can't remember what it's called, like Pledge Week. I mean, it was basically just, it was in the moment where hazing was at its peak in his life. And I, I saw him, we bumped into each other, and he had this look of absolute bewilderment, absolute just being completely overwhelmed. And we just had this quick conversation, and how's it going? Are you okay? You look a little bit, you look a little like you're not doing very well. Is this fun for you? Are you glad? Is this a good decision? Is this not a good decision? Um, but basically, what he was in the middle of doing, his particular hazing experience for that evening, was that his senior had given him the responsibility that before the clock struck two in the morning, he had to come back with a single pack of cigarettes, which contained 20 different kinds of cigarettes from 20 different convenience stores all around Columbia, South Carolina. And he had to come back with 20 different receipts, proving that he had gotten 20 different cigarettes from 20 different convenience stores and hand it to him before 2 in the morning because that's just one of the things that you can do. That is crazy power, isn't it? Like some senior, some frat dude at the University of South Carolina who's probably barely passing, and we're not sure he's making that great of life decisions if he thinks that sort of thing is fun, is having that kind of power over my friend, I didn't even get to see him. Not very powerful people exhibit great, ridiculous power all the time, which leads to the second part of his, the centurion's logic. Therefore, we should be deeply expectant of what Jesus, who possesses true power, can do in our lives. So follow the line of reasoning. Not very powerful people demonstrate great power all the time, I tell people to go and they go, I tell people to do and they do. So if that is what not very powerful people are able to do, how much more expectant should we be then that Jesus, who we're told elsewhere in the scriptures, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that for by him and all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. How expectant should we be of 
of the kind of power that can be poured out by this man who actually has real power. That's why the centurion is like, you not only heal, you don't even have to be in the room to heal. Like, just say the word, and boom, it's taken care of from a distance. Just speak, and it's done. That's the type of power that God has. He speaks and he creates. He speaks and he heals. Five, Jesus' expectation interrupting response. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is, again, it's like as soon as you feel like you can put Jesus in a box, he turns your expectations upside down. And nowhere is that seen more prominently, repeatedly, than the way that he's turning upside down the first century Jewish expectations of the Messiah. Again, if you're a first century Jew, this is the exact opposite of the way that you expect the Messiah to speak. You're expecting the Messiah to murder Romans and liberate the Jewish people. And here's Jesus, not only gifting healing to this Roman soldier, but tagging on a warning to his own Jewish people, saying that even though they're ethnically Jewish, they are not guaranteed entrance into heaven, but many will actually be left, in his own words, in the darkness where where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While simultaneously, a glorious glimpse of heaven is given. Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. It's a foretaste. It's an anticipation of the glory of heaven, where we're told in Revelation 7 that after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is giving a glorious glimpse of the diversity of heaven and a haunting warning of hell, particularly to those who believe that their ethnic superiority or proximity to religious people will secure their salvation. Jesus is saying very plainly, hear this, beloved. Jesus is saying very plainly, everybody spends forever somewhere. And what makes or breaks where you spend that forever is not your bloodline, and it is not if you happen to grow up in a religious environment or no other religious people. It all boils down to who do you say that he is. And he concludes all this with, again, putting his willingness on display and delivering the very work that this centurion so desperately desired. Verse 13, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. That's the story. Now let's ask the question of how that story intersects then with our story. And all I'm going to do is give you three questions. And Shekinah's going to come back up here. She's going to lead us in a time of response. I would encourage you as much as possible, try not to multitask. It's hard to be present right now. I know it is, but I really believe that creating some space to work through some of these questions and to hear the voice of God um, and how he is leading you and speaking to you today is a a beautiful investment uh, of your time. So three questions that I believe helps this story intersect with our own story. One, once you ask the question of 
What do you believe about you disqualifies you from Jesus' favor towards you? What is it that you're ashamed of? It's a scary place to go. But what is it that you believe disqualifies you? What do you believe makes you unworthy? What is it that the accuser, Satan is called the accuser, what is it that he makes you feel, makes you so bad or so dirty or so unworthy that sure, Jesus is powerful, but he's only powerful in other people's lives who have been much better than you or haven't made the same mistakes as you. Where are you prone to believe those lies? Two, have you talked to Jesus about this? Don't be just anxious about this. Don't just internally process this. Don't even just talk to other people about this. Talk to Jesus. We said this last week. Jesus is alive. He's changing lives. He hears us. He speaks to us. Intimacy with Jesus is cultivated not when you pretend to think things you're not actually thinking or to feel things you're not actually feeling, but is when we are actually vulnerable and honest. He can handle it. So name, in line with the legacy of the centurion, name why you feel unworthy, why we are unworthy, and talk to him about this. Find safety. When we enter into that journey of being honest with Jesus and finding not rejection, but rather safety, our greatest joy of intimacy with him, relationship with him, is starting to actually be tasted and seen. So we talk to Jesus. Three, and in light of the safety that is gifted to us, what do you want to be asking Jesus for in this season? If he really is who he shows himself to be in these scenes again and again and again, if honesty about our weakness is met not with rejection but rather safety and welcoming and an outpouring of his powerful willingness towards us, what do you want to be practically asking Jesus for? If Jesus answered your prayers in six weeks, what would happen in your life or in the world around you, in your neighbors' lives, in your family's lives? What are you asking him for? What are you expectant of? How do you want to anticipate his power being poured out in your life? And I encourage you to enter into the beautiful struggle with him of asking and expecting and struggling and seeing the tangible fruit that he really is alive. And he really does the same things today as you've seen him do over and over again uh, in this portion of Matthew. So I'm just going to pray, and I'm just going to transition us now into a time where Shekinah will lead us to respond. And I just pray in the kindness of God um, that he speaks uh, into your life to really give a sense of safety and expectation um, in the coming season that we're stepping into uh, as a church. So Father, we ask for that. We pray that you would um, speak now. I know that many of us, myself included right now in this moment, um, if we're just the least bit honest, feel like that's either not possible or we haven't prayed enough this week to deserve that or there's this mistake we made recently or our faith is struggling and, and we're doubting and then you can get even in your own head of like, is it because I'm doubting? Does that mean that I'm going to doubt that you're speaking and then you do speak and then we find a million different ways to explain a way that you have spoken and, and God has prayed that you would cut through the midst of all of that craziness and complexity and take us back Have us be born again.
in the same way that a small child to their parent just looks at that parent and cries out, reaches out, and expects to receive. So may we as your children be that way today. May we cry out, reach out, expect to receive. And God, I just pray in this time of response that that would not just be a a vague generality, but you would really start to produce within us some specific expectations of the way that we are anticipating you moving. God, we're thankful for your kindness. We're thankful for the kindness of the gospel, where when you saw the worst in us, you didn't abandon us, but you went to the cross to die for us. And I pray that safety would create expectancy and that you move mightily in this coming season that we're stepping into as a church. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.